This is ASI, episode 53. My name is Russ Shaw. The topic today is about sex, relationships, and religion. Here's some skillet. Check it out. Who's gonna heal my pain? Nothing makes me feel like you do. You can drive my demons away. Nothing makes me heal like you do. I love your mind, heart, body, and soul. ASI is a listener-supported podcast. It's made possible by donations from listeners who have felt led and challenged to give in order to breathe life into this this humble, misfit, soul-tweaking, rock-and-roll journey known as the ASI Podcast. If you're feeling the pull to donate, you can do that on the website asi247.org. Not all clips, sermons, sound bites, or bumper promo music are done with permission from the speakers or artists. Clips played or guests on the podcast do not warrant an endorsement, recommendation, or seal of approval of Russ Shaw or ASI247.org. Links to downloading the songs that are played on the show in bumper promo fashion via talk radio or speech media format can be found at asi247.org. Click on the music tab and you can buy most of the music right there on the website. My religion, my religion is you. That's an interesting lyric right there, isn't it? From the band Skillet. Again, uh, ASI247.org is the website. Uh, my, who, who am I? What? I'm Russ Shaw. Uh, Russ at ASI247.org is my email address if you'd like to chat, if you'd like to rap. I was on a, a sabbatical for a while. Took a little break from the show. I'm back. How you doing? Getting back into the groove of things. Um, today, I have some of that, uh, what do you call that? Intentional, purposeful audio for you. Um, I'm going to play a little talk by a cat named Tim Keller. Tim Keller's a uh, pastor. He runs a church called Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, right in the beating heart of the Big Apple. Tim Keller. Love this cat. And when he does a talk on sex, he's got my attention. When he does a talk on sex and music, he's doubly got my attention on that one, right? Uh, This guy's intelligent. He's making an impact on the culture in New York City. Love this man. Here you go. This is Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian right after the bumpers. There you go. Just can't 
way an open forum works, the way we've done this over the years, is we take some issue of abiding relevance, of, of, of abiding interest, and an issue that people debate about, and we use art to try to th shed light on the facts on the ground about our experience. See, what the music does is it tells us something about how we actually experience sex. It tells us something, there's, there are things that we can say are kind of self-evident if you're observing it. So the art gives us the facts on the ground. Then we have to figure out how to explain and account for the things that we see and how to make sense of it. And you have to do that from some perspective. There is no such thing as a view from nowhere. And so what we try to do here when we do the open forums is we take the art, we see the facts on the ground, and then we use Christianity as a resource. Uh, some of you may find this helpful. Some of you may find this a little off-putting. Some of you may, I, I think everybody's going to find it interesting. That Christianity can give you a, res it can be a resource to help you make sense of our experience of sex. Now, what do I mean by experience of sex? Well, looking at the music, and it is a little hard. You can get carried away by the music and not actually look at the words, uh, but the words are actually pretty important, and the music and the words are of a piece. And so here are four facts on the ground that I think we know about sex today, and uh, that comes from the music. The first fact on the ground is, in spite of what um, David said, and I'll get back to this, that in some ways sexuality is something that we've experienced all of throughout human history. Um, there has been an enormous change culturally in our attitude towards sex in the last 70 years. One of the best ways to see that is to contrast the earlier song, like for example, uh, I Can Cook Too, from 1944, Leonard Bernstein. And uh, now it's all in double meanings. This is a woman, her name is the character in the Broadway is Hilde Esterhazy. And Hilde is offering herself sexually, but it's all double meanings. It's all through the cooking and the food. Uh, for example, my ribs get applause. My lamb chops will cause you to drool. My oven's the hottest you'll find. My chickens just ooze. My gravy will lose you your mind. And you know what? Why doesn't it work when I say it? You know, Roz was singing it, you were on your feet screaming, and I just said it, what, something wrong with me? They're all double meanings. There's no way that would have been on Broadway. There's no way that would have been allowed on the air, you know. And now you come 70 years later, and you've got locked out of heaven. <laughs> your sex takes me to paradise, and everybody's fine. There we are. Something's happened. Now, what's happened? Here's my point. Contem I think there's a fact on the ground. Contemporary culture puts more emphasis on sex. It talks more about sex. It hopes more for sex. It sees sex as this transcendent thing that will, if you get it right, will make everything incredibly happy. There's never been a culture in the history of the world that put so much emphasis and so much hopes in sex. You say, what? I thought the Greeks and the Romans, for example, were very open about sex. Now listen, it's always a bad idea to read your own cultural moment back into the past and say, well, all enlightened people were the same. It's not fair. And if you actually go back to Greece and Rome, that is not what you see. For example, read Plato's Symposium, which is actually about sex and romance. And you'll see, yes, Plato is pretty open to all kinds. But if you read carefully, sex was just a practice. 
Sex was never an identity. It was not a right. It was never seen as a necessity. If you said to Plato, well, we're living together because before we get married, we have to make sure we're, we have, you know, sexually compatible, he would have said, what? Because the Greeks believed that friendship was infinitely more, a more infinitely important and good love than sexual romantic love. Why? Because they thought of the body as basically unimportant. There has never been a culture like ours. There's never been a culture that puts so much emphasis, talks so much about it, and, gets, and, and puts so much hope in sexual romantic love. Okay, that's the first fact on the ground, which you get from the, from the music, and is just true. Second fact on the ground is sex is so enormously powerful that basically it's our master, not our servant. That basically sex is so powerful that it's really in charge, we're not. Now that comes out, you know, the first song uh, that Keith sang, the Al Green song, Love and Happiness, actually says, you know, sex is a power. And he says, sex will make you, I mean, love will make you do right, then love will make you do wrong, love will make you come home, love will make you go to bed on time, have a disciplined life, or stay out all night. The point is, once we're in the grip of it, we do whatever it takes. You want me to be disciplined? Okay. You want me to be totally undisciplined? Okay. And a big part of the power is that sexual romantic love tends to deify the lover. To deify. What do I mean? Well... You know, you see, for example, in Let's Stay Together, that, that song we sang tonight, Let's Stay Together, whatever you do is all right, uh, it'll be all right with me. There's a tendency to either say, I'm so in love with you, you can do no wrong, or the Billie Holiday song, which we'll get back to in a second, which is the most brutal and painful of all the songs, where she basically says, uh, you know, I'm going to let you walk all over me because I can't live without you, you know. Lipstick on the collar, don't worry about it. I'm completely yours. It doesn't matter. I know you're cheating on me. What's that? <laughs> That's deifying the person. It's saying, I can't live without you. Uh, sexual romantic love is so powerful that I hardly ever talk to anybody who's candid with me who doesn't say that I've, I've been in relationships I really should have been out of. They weren't good for me, but I really couldn't. I've slept with people I shouldn't have slept with, but I really, really couldn't. Stop. I mean, in a way, I, you know, I mean, I don't know anybody who hasn't at some point said that sexual romantic love was such a power in my life, it ran, it ran my life, it ruled me. So that's the second thing on the ground, is sex is an enormous power, and it's more of our master than a servant. Thirdly, okay, now this is the most controversial of the things I'm going to say, but I, again, I think it comes out of the songs, and it comes out of not just these songs, but all kinds of love songs. Sexual love if it's not in an exclusive relationship, is dehumanizing. Now, the longest and saddest songs up here are all about that. You know, the, 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 you know, the, the long songs from, the, I don't want to recount all the stories, but from the, the Broadway play, The Last Five Years, where the couple, Jamie and, Ka and Catherine, were talking there, that was the dissolution of a marriage, as you know, a man being... Uh, you know, n not having an exclusive sexual relationship with, with his wife and it falling apart. But I mean, uh, I Can't Make You Love Me. Remember that one? The first one that Mindy sang? I thought, it's, it's brutal because, and by the way, Bonnie Raitt, I think, sings that song. She, even now she sings it, and she says, when I get to those lines, you know, the, uh, uh, I can't make you love me if you don't, you can't make your heart feel something if it won't. If I'm loving you and you are not able to exclusively love me back, but you're going elsewhere, it kills me. 
The uh, Billie Holiday song, Don't Explain, was written by Billie Holiday in the 1940s, who said she wrote it after her husband, Jimmy Monroe, came home one night with lipstick traces on his collar. And basically in there, it's, she says, I'm so completely yours, yet she says, I know you cheat, but don't worry about it, don't even think about it. What she's saying is, I'm yours, but you're not mine. And it's just brutal. I mean, the music's sometimes so lovely, you sit back and you sort of let the, you know, the music throb over you and all that. But if you actually look and see what the, some of those, uh, those uh, very, very sad songs are about, it gets across this idea that sexual romantic love, if it's not done in an exclusive relationship, is devastating. Now, it's destructive, you, dehumanizing. You say, well, what if both people are just trying to have fun? No, you don't have one person giving themselves, the other person not. Both people are having fun. Well, even so, and here's something I'll say again for the next couple of minutes, is the primal, um, you have to, almost all the love songs talk like this. Here's from Let's Stay Together. You make me feel brand new. I want to spend my life with you. Let me say that since we've been together, loving you forever is what I need. Let me, I mean, this is almost typical. Let me be the one you come running to. I'll never be untrue. Let's stay together, loving you, whether times are good or bad, happy or sad. That is the primal impulse of sexual romantic love. You want to give yourself. If you, you can, to be sophisticated, train yourself to detach yourself so much from the feelings of romance that sex is really basically just a way of getting a thrill. Yeah, it's possible, but that is not, I don't think, primal. The primal experience of sexual romantic love is, I want to be in an exclusive relationship. I want to be in a permanent relationship. That's why the word forever shows up all the time in love songs, all the time. So the third, I think, fact on the ground is that Sex outside of an exclusive relationship is dehumanizing, and I think there's lots and lots of artistic evidence for that, and there's lots of uh, personal evidence for that. Now, the fourth thing, real fast, because I don't want to make sense of this now, <laughs> is that the songs say that sex tends to be far more than a physical experience or even a psychological experience. Because love songs are constantly, instinctively grabbing for words that are spiritual. The word forever comes up all the time. Take me to heaven. Look at all the, the Bruno Mars thing. It's all spiritual, but spiritual ecstasy, you know. And, and frankly, even all the, those are a lot, of, a lot of those are very skillful love songs. Even the stupid love songs do the same thing. You know, like, uh, well, don't you remember the one from years back? Longer than there have been stars up in the heaven, I've been in love with you. But I say, unless you dehumanize yourself and detach, your, detach sex from your heart, that's how you feel. That's how you feel. And you have to reach for something spiritual because sex actually gives you something more than just a physical charge. It can be a doorway to the transcendent. So now, take those four things. What are the four things? The culture change is far more than physical. Uh, primal exclusivity, and it's a power that we have to figure out how to not have it ruin our lives and rule our lives. How can we make sense of these four? And I would like to give you three ideas from Christianity. Three ideas from Christianity that I think help you understand and answer some of the questions. And then we're done. We're going to have a brief time of Q&A, and I'll tell you how that works in a second. Here's the first 
of the three things I want to tell you. Number one, Christianity would say that people are trying to get today, in our modern culture, people are trying to get out of sex and romance what people used to look to religion and God to give them. And that's the reason why it is so emphasized today. The reason why it's talked about in such cosmic ways. The reason why Bruno Mars will say, your, you know, your, your sex takes me to heaven. Let me say that again. Today, we're looking for sex and romance to give us what in the past people looked to religion and God to give them. To make my case, uh, Ernest Becker, a, an atheist, by the way, just to let you know, an atheist who wrote in the 1970s, he wrote a book called The Nile of Death that won the Pulitzer Prize. And the basic point of the denial of death was that now that we all know, see, here's what he was assuming. Now that we all know that there is no God, now that we modern people, this is 1970s, now all that we smart people know that there is no God, what are we going to do? How are we going to replace him? Now listen to this, quote Ernest Becker. Modern man edged himself into an impossible situation. He still needed to feel heroic to know that his life mattered in the grand scheme of things. He still had to merge himself with some higher self-absorbing meaning in trust and gratitude. But if he no longer had any God, how was, how was he to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to the modern person, as Otto Rank saw, was the romantic solution, hence the title of tonight. The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost being, modern man now looked for in the love partner. All spiritual and moral needs are now become focused on one individual. To be sure, all through history, there has been some competition between human objects of love and divine ones. Uh, we can think of Heloise and Abelard, of Alcibiades and Socrates. But the main difference is that in religious societies, the human partner would not absorb into himself the whole dimension of the divine longing. In modern society, he does. Now, you know what he's saying? Let me say that he is saying that religion is not basically just a way to channel repressed sexual feelings. You ever see The Crucible by Arthur Miller? Or what, ever read Sigmund Freud? What they say is, yeah, 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 religion is just repressed sexuality. Actually, what Ernest Becker is saying, no, 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 sexuality is repressed religiosity. It's exactly the other way around. You're trying to get from sex what you used to go to God for. You say, what is that? Well, everybody needs a word from outside to give you vindication, validation, self-worth. You, you, you can't just look at yourself and say, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great. <laughs> oh, we try. We need a word from outside. Listen, Bridget Jones' diary. Okay, quote, New Year's resolution. Bridget Jones. New Year's resolutions. Resolution one, buy books by unreadable literary authors to put impressively on shelves. <laughs> Resolution two, develop inner poise and authority and sense of self as a woman complete without boyfriend. Since very way, best way to obtain boyfriend. <laughs> okay. And then third, be assured, receptive, responsive woman of substance, knowing that my sense of self comes not from other people, but from, from myself? Wait, that can't be right. <laughs> and she's, she's right. To say, 
If you want to attract people, of course, you need to have this poise and a sense of self, and you know who you are, and you know you're okay. But if nobody outside thinks you're okay, if there's nobody telling you're okay, you're not going to have that poise. Your sense of self can't come from self. You, you need, and here's the thing, a person who you don't respect saying, I think you're great, But a person you respect saying, I think you're great. And a person you adore, you adore, adoring you. Hey, now I've got a sense of self. Now, here's what was in the past. Literally, the person you adored, God, the majestic one you literally worshipped. If you could come into a relationship where you know you had God's favor, God's love, and you were going to live with God forever... That's absolutely transforming. And then sex and romance and love is great, but it, you're, not trying to, you're not trying to satisfy that foundation. But now we are. Now we are. We're looking to sex and romance to give us what in the past only God was looked to. And Becker's quote ends like this, and he's absolutely right. He says, but no human relationship can possibly bear the burden of godhood after all. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, the love partner cannot give this. If you put more value on the love of a human being if you look to your spouse or to your love partner to give you that sense of validation, you will crush your love partner with expectations of that. Your expectations, they will crush, be crushed under the weight of your expectations. Why? First of all, the person's imperfect. They're not always going to be adorable. And if, they, if you lose respect for them, then you, you feel your own self-regard crumbling. Also, it, because you can't live without them, that's, that is, a, by the way... That's, that's a recipe for abuse. See, if you get so detached, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just adore anybody, then you're gonna be lonely. On the other hand, if you adore anybody more than you adore God, that person becomes your master. Even if he or she isn't trying to. You, you, you're too angry, you're too upset with their anger so you can't tell them the truth. You're so needy. Or, or if you're not married, you know, you're looking for a partner. You're just looking for a partner. You're going to need the partner so much, you're going to put all the freights of your spiritual longings in it, and you're going to be too desperately searching. Or you're going to be so scared, so scared of disappointment, so scared of, your, of the deep need that you're just going to stay away and try to do without. So the point is, that the first point is simply this. Our modern culture puts too much emphasis on sex and romance because God's not in our lives. And if you actually look to sex and romance to give you what God in the past gave people, you will, destroy, you will be devastated. Your own sexual and romantic life will be distorted, to say the least. Point one. Point two. Does that, doesn't that make sense of some things? I think it does. Make sense of what we see on the ground? Secondly, um, here's the second thing. The Bible and Christianity says that sex is not merely biological. We experience it something much more than that because it was made by God to be something more than that. What? Two things. I'm going to tell you these two things and then we'll be done. 
First of all, the Bible says Christians understand sex as God's ordained way to say to another person, I belong permanently and exclusively to you. Holy. Christianity thinks that God invented sex to say to someone else, I belong permanently and exclusively to you, holy, and you mustn't use sex to say anything else because sex is a commitment apparatus. Now, let me, let me explain that. When you have sex, you become naked and vulnerable and you give your body. Christianity teaches that that should be a symbol and a sign the physical giving of the body, the physical nakedness and vulnerable of the body should be a sign that you have become totally vulnerable, totally open, and you've given your whole self. We would say you give the body as a sign that you've given your whole self. And how do you give your whole self? It means you, with all that you are economically, all that you, uh, all that you have, in other words, you marry. See, somebody who says, I want to have sex, but I don't want to get married, what you're saying is, I want to give you my body, but I don't want to give you my life. I want to hold on to my independence. I don't want to give you myself. And Christianity understands that God created sex to be something that's done inside marriage, because any other place it would be a lie, to say, I belong completely and exclusively to you. And what it does then is it, it's, it's this incredible, unifying, nurturing discipline inside marriage that keeps the marriage strong keeps it fresh, and just deepens it and deepens it and deepens it. If you use sex, not to say, I belong to you. In other words, if you say, I, I would, I'm going to make myself physically vulnerable to you. I'm going to be stripped. I'm going to be naked. I'm going to be vulnerable. But I'm not going to make myself personally involved in vulnerable. I'm vulnerable. I'm going to hold it back. Then you're actually not using sex to give yourself. You're using sex to get something, but not to give. And you're misusing it. And you might be ruining it as a commitment apparatus. Now, does that explain the primal exclusivity we've been talking about? I think it does. It explains those those incredible feelings, those those profound feelings. I think it does. But, lastly, the other thing that the Bible says, Christians say about sexuality, and this is the real nosebleed. Ready? If you go to places like Ephesians 5, it's in the New Testament, where Paul says that The love between a husband and wife points to the love between Jesus Christ and his people. And what this traditionally has been understood to mean by Christian theologians, especially, for example, Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval theologian, is that even the most rapturous, wonderful, romantic sex is only a dim hint of what it's going to be like to someday see God face to face and to have him. And here's, the, here, you know, it's, we want someone to adore who we adore, adore us. That's what we're looking for. When we actually see the majestic, infinitely beautiful Lord of the universe who looks at you and says, this is my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. That will inflict a joy and a, a, a closure and a sense of love and union that even the greatest sex on earth is just, it's like a dewdrop compared to an ocean. And even the foretaste of that that can happen to people who unite with God in prayer, you can have some of that now. Even the the foretaste 
of that divine love is better than the aftertaste of any other kind of love. And therefore, what does that mean? Well, John chapter 4, there's a place where Jesus is talking to a woman at the well, a very famous place, and the woman um, uh, is drawing water, and he's, he's there, and he says, Could, uh, he says, I have a water. If you drink my water, you'll never thirst again. I have the water of eternal life. Eternal life. And the Samaritan woman says, really? Let me have that water. And he says, okay, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. Interesting question. Why, when he's talking about eternal life, and she's asking for eternal life, does he bring up her sex life? And what he's trying to say is, you've been looking in men for what I have for you. And unless I am the true love of your life, your relationships to men, your relationships to, to you know, sex and romance, it will drive you. You'll be under, under its thumb. It'll be your master, not your servant. It'll be distorted. I'm the spouse you need. And then you'll be safe for a spouse. I'm the lover you need. And then you'll be able to handle a lover because you won't either be too afraid of that lover or too idolatrous of that lover. You won't deify the lover. So how do you get that? How do you get this incredible relationship with Christ? Simple. The Bible says on the cross he died for our sins. And you know what that means? He made himself vulnerable. He was stripped. He made himself vulnerable. Completely vulnerable. He looked deep into us and did that anyway. You know, he was God. He looked into you. See, to be, to be loved but not known isn't very transforming. You love me, but you don't know me. To be known but not loved, to have somebody look right into me and then reject me, is my greatest nightmare. But to be utterly known and then completely loved, to have Jesus die for me and then for me to know that, uh, that's the love that you're really looking for, without which your sexual or romantic life will be uh, distorted, I think. And, by the way, what it means is sex actually, in the end, if you use it, I think, according to the way that Christianity thinks about it, can actually be fun. There's one Christian writer who puts it like this. Oh, it can finally be fun. It's not like, oh, my gosh, I've got to have the right person. I've got to have Mr. Right, Ms. Right. I've got to... Well, yeah, it'd be nice if you could do that. It's not the end of the world if you don't. You know, you're back to the way the ancients used to be. Sex is a great idea, but it shouldn't be the whole thing. There's one Christian writer put it like this, and I think it's kind of fun, actually. He says, we must not... By the way, this is a little bit weird because I'm talking about opera here, but anyway. We must not attempt to find a divine absolute in sex. We should not sing all our love duets in the throbbing, world-without-end, heartbreaking manner of Tristan and Isolde. The gospel frees us to often sing about our love like Papageno and Papagena instead. Okay, I know. We didn't do opera tonight, we did this. And this is a very anticlimactic way to end the lecture, but you know, next time I'll do better. All right. I just couldn't think of a good ending, you know? I couldn't think. You know, an ending where everybody's going, well, it's a lecture, you know, what do you want? All right. Let us...
Yes, that is Tim Keller from uh, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. Uh, he touched on two operas and a Christian writer in this uh, at the end of that and, and talked about how it wasn't a very <laughs> climactic ending to his lecture. But it's a lecture. What do you want, right? Um, me, being the curious dude that I am, uh, went and, and researched this because I know nothing about opera. I think that one time, uh, one of my grandparents might have dragged me to an opera when I was like 12 or 13, and I slept through like half of it. So uh, I remember getting dressed up and, and getting really sleepy. <laughs> so I just didn't get it, man. I don't know. But I, I, do, I do like the concept of opera. I don't know if I would ever want to go to one. Um, it would be kind of cool to get emotionally into the story or whatever the thing they're trying to say. Operas were the original music videos, man. Um, and one of the operas he's talking about here is The Magic Flute by Mozart. Uh, Mozart was a rock, rock me Amadeus, right? <laughs> That's that bumper. Um, he, he, uh, uh, yeah, I know. I'll, I'll play the bumper, right? I should. Anyway, um, he's, he wanted a visual, artsy, you know, emotional thing to see for people to experience that was, that went along with this music that he wrote. And that's, uh, man, that's the birth of, uh, it's the birth of opera, right? I, I don't know. It's like the 17th, it's the 17th century or something like that earlier. I don't know. But the, the Magic Flute is a very, uh, a very fun uh, old opera. Um, the Papagena and Papagani. Papa, Papa I don't know. Th those are the two characters in the Magic Flute. Um, the other one he touches on is uh, Tristan and Iola. Isola. Uh, trying to, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, which is more of a, uh, a tragedy kind of a thing. Uh, going into a little rock and roll history, the chord that is in this opera, the opera is called Tristan and Isola. I guess that's the name of the opera. Um, the death chord is Black Sabbath borrowed the death chord in the song uh, Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath which is interesting, right? A uh, song about going to hell or something like that. The, the pain and lament and this being just in the dire straits and the horribleness of it all. Uh, both of these operas are love stories. Both of these operas deal with the, the heart pangs that, that we encounter in relationship. And some of that, you know, scientists can uh, square it away and you know there's a scientific explanation for everything Russ and okay uh, but there's something to falling in love with another person there's something mysterious about it even spiritual about it that both of these operas try you know I mean they, they do get to that I don't understand the music all right but <laughs> they do I guess get to that level and you you feel for the lovers as they go through the dissonance right of the the love stories and all of the horrible things that happen and the heartbreaking um, things that happen to both couples but in in the magic flute by Mozart the uh, 
it, it's more of a it's more of a story that has an an ending that goes outside of just this existential Nietzsche-esque, you know, long walk off a short pier kind of ending to the story that is in the Tristan and Isola play, all right? Um, and it reminded me of a, of a story from my own life of a, of a guy that I know, I'm not going to share his name, um, but he, he, he been married to the same woman for over 50 years. Um, the guy's in his 80s today, lives in a nursing home, and um, he, his wife died about a decade ago. And he's still okay, right? Like, he still has a lot of hope to him. He still has a smile on his face. He's still the guy that, you know, was fun around the nursing home, from what I gathered from the staff and stuff, right? This guy. And uh, and that's his thing. He's this Christian dude, and he, and he knows he's going to see his, uh, his, his beautiful beloved again one day. Um, and, and it's not just a, a whole, well, I sure hope so. No, it's, it's a going to happen, right? He's going to be reunited with his love. Because both of them fell in love with Jesus Christ. And because of that love, I remember a marriage counselor talking to my wife and I about this, this triangle, triangular thing, right? Like God is at the top. And as we get closer to God, we grow closer together. And when one in a love relationship leaves this earth, that that triangle continues still, right? One of them closer to God than the other. In, at the end of, of time, right? At the end of his life. So uh, that's a different. That's a dip, That's a whole different worldview than the worldview that's played out in the uh, Tristan and, and, and I, Isola. Now, where did I get this? Where, what is he talking about when he says a Christian writer? Um, a Christian writer once said, that's what, that's what Keller said at the end of this thing. And I don't know this for sure, all right? But I did some research online. Google is a wonderful tool. Um, I just Googled the first few lines of what he said the person said, at the writer, the Christian writer that he, he was talking about. And what I came up with was a TED Talk that is actually it's not on video or anything it's a it's a ted conversation and it's like a big huge blog post and it's basically an atheist guy who's raising the question without god there's no morality right is the is the question and uh and this this what he wrote had to do with that all right so maybe uh maybe that helps solve that dissonance that the gospel is a love story that it's not just you know our relationships and our having great sex um, sex is fun sex is good it's like having a great meal but it's not the ultimate and I think that that's where a lot of people go in our culture and that's what he's touching on in a lot of ways is that if we're not having this mind-blowing sex if you know that your life is over or something right like that sex is somehow God and your sex takes me to paradise and without that um, what's there to live for really you know why do we stay in relationship a lot of 
a lot of people are asking those questions in our in our culture based on sexuality based on relationship and the facts are that it's not the ultimate that there is a god that he does love you that he does know the hairs in your head that he will not leave you nor forsake you don't covet right don't be so covetous and idolatrous like that's part of that verse he will never leave you nor forsake you. He loves you. He's by your side. This is a big, long um, love story that God is telling to each one of his, his creation. And we are, uh, man, we're, we're a different being than the animals, all right? It's just how it is. That's part of the hymns and the music at church. And we go and we worship God in song, man. And we're singing songs to our love, just like the end of Papageno and Papagayo, Pika de Gallo. <laughs> I don't know, but that's you see what I'm saying, right? That's that's the end of that play, man. It's it's a gospel-centered kind of a thing that we would enter in with other folks and sing songs to our Creator and the Lover of our souls, and that's how that the the opera, the music video. The, the song of this life is, is, is solved in my mind. And again, if you disagree with me, that's cool. Uh, but, uh, you know, at least maybe have the, uh, the cojones, maybe the, the courage, the right, to uh, send me an email about it. It's russ at asi247.org. And when I say gospel-based Christianity isn't religion. I, I, I am a theist, all right? I am a Christian. But the difference is when the atheist guy says things like um, all the wars and the bloodshed and social injustice and racism and sexism and all the horribleness that happens because of religion, man, I agree with that, all right? The gospel's different. It has a different worldview. The gospel, which is the good news about Jesus Christ. Don't, don't, don't put us in the religion box, right? It's not the same. And the way you think about God, the way you think about good news, is the way you think about love, all right? It just changes everything, and that's the truth. So, till next time, my name is Russ Shaw, reminding you to chill, be real, and do the next life-giving thing. Later. Bye. Adios.